Welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we're listening to Omar Salsa um, and his uh, recording, East African Journey. And he is joined by Manja Mahafe. And hopefully you were able to catch him last week in concert with uh, two collaborators, and one of them was Katenji um, Mberry. And and Katenji is a visual artist here in the San Francisco Bay Area who created a large um, sculpted piece of of Africa or or, uh, ancient uh, Kemet. Um, And it was really, really beautiful. And I thought it would be kind of fitting to uh, to play that little excerpt Um, because we are joined today by uh, Professor Maynu Ampin, who is a regular um, guest here on the show. Good morning, uh, Brother Maynu. How are you? I'm doing uh, just fine, Sister Wanda. Glad to be back with you this morning. 
Yeah, the last time we had you on, we were talking about Hajj Malik El Shabazz. That was such a wonderful program, my goodness, on the day of his birth, um, May 19th. And, um, and we're also joined by a colleague of yours, Sister uh, Mayada uh, Manan Brake. Is that correct? Did I pronounce your name correctly? <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. Thank you. Greetings, Sister Wanda. Thank you for having Greetings. me. Greetings. Yeah, and both of you are um, joining us to talk about this upcoming uh, Kushite Nubian Heritage International Conference, Preserving African Legacy, which is going to be a virtual conference next weekend, October 1st through 3rd. And people can go online and, and get their uh, their passes. It's going to be really exciting. Um, um, Brother Maynou, you're one of the organizers. And I'm not sure, uh, Sister Mayada, I know you're presenting um, you and your father, and um, and maybe you're one of the organizers, but I was so impressed. There are so many smart African people presenting from throughout the past. It's like, oh, my gosh. And you are um, a longtime Nubian activist with family roots in northern Sudan. So I thought perhaps um, maybe you could talk about how you know each other, and um, and then I could read your bios or you could introduce each other. Just let me know. Uh, we're going to be talking together for a minute, so... Um, let me know how do you want to do it. Well, Sister Mata, I'll allow you to go first. Actually, we um, fought uh, Professor Manu uh, for quite some time uh, and attempted to find those that uh, may connect us with him. We've uh, read a lot of his work. And uh, we were impressed by his field research and the fact that he was one of the few um, uh, African-American academicians here in the United States that was actually in accord with us as far as the anti-damming movement in Sudan. And um, we uh, uh, fought him, and uh, we um, spoke to Sister uh, Teresa from... Uh, Pasetti Foundation, and she actually connected us, and they're also um, part of um, Kushite Nubian Collaborative. And uh, from then on, it's just been um, a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it's been wonderful on, on both sides, and so it's been great to work with Sister Maada and her, her father, Baba Nuruddin uh, Abdul Manin. And with our uh, Save Nubia project, we were inspired by the resistance of the Nubian communities in um, in, uh, in Sudan and also to Egypt, in Egypt to some extent, to really stop this series of dams that would flood one of the greatest uh, historical regions in the world, but also flood and continue to displace and marginalize current living Nubian communities. So as a scholar... It doesn't make sense to simply talk about the past without being also concerned 
about the present. And as Sister Mata mentioned, uh, I've been in the field, in the trenches, to make sure that my work is is real and relevant to current issues and not just the past, which is critical and important because we do have to cut, recover from historical amnesia, but we also must keep, keep an eye on what's happening today and project how we should move forward in the future. So what we, we did when Sister Mata reached out, uh, through Sister Teresa Dotson of the Tassetti Foundation, we decided to form a collaborative with the Tassetti Foundation, the Save Nubia Project, which I helped co-found in 2012, and then Sister Maada and her father and that group, they already had formed as longtime activists the Nubia Project. So we, so the three groups came together to form the Kushite Nubian Collaborative, or KNC. So we've been working together now for the past three years, and this international conference coming up October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd is is, uh, is the first big project that we're organizing, and we know that this will be a historic conference where African people are organizing an international conference for us, by us, but not just an intellectual conference or a lecture conference, but a working conference so we can present historical insight about classical African civilizations, but also contemporary current issues presented by cultural advocates as well, so we can can address uh, issues and help to solve some of these issues with solutions. And so our conference is totally historic because we're not relying on outsiders to tell our story for us and so it's not just intellectuals but it is as i mentioned cultural activists and cultural advocates and so our our uh unity for over the last three years is really focused on the past and the present from those who are in the field and those that are from that area of uh the nile valley you know and so uh system Mata, as you mentioned uh, earlier, is a long time with her her, folly, her father and other colleagues, a long time Nubian activist. So we can do no better here in the U.S. than to partner up with our brothers and sisters to help solve problems that affect all of us as far as we're concerned. There's no real reasonable separation uh, between our situation here and our brothers and sisters on the continent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Sister Mayada, um uh, the Nubia Project was founded in 2008 in Washington, D.C. by your father, uh, former Sudanese ambassador, as um, Professor Maynou mentioned, Nuruddin Abdul uh, Manan, also known as Nuruddin uh, Manan. Uh, Khalid, uh, is it Jarais? Uh, yes, yeah, Yes. Also known as Tanud Aman and uh, Fagiri Gawash and yourself. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about, about your organization and and your role within the organization, because um, I don't see a bio for you. Um, so, yeah, tell us about, about your organization and, and the partners and what you all are working on presently, besides this conference, of course. Um. So I uh, I have to say that um, as far as activism is concerned, you would actually meet many that had a similar experience where their parents um, mm-hmm. uh, sort of threw us in there. And it's, uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> so you're at every rally or you're at every meeting and you end up joining the same groups uh we uh, initially did not start off as a Nubia project. We had the Rescue Nubia campaign, the Save Dark mm-hmm. Four campaign, in which it uh, 
brought a lot of attention. Um, and much of it was uh, learning lessons as well because we've create, uh, helped create some coalitions such as the Save Back or um, campaign or coalition. And unfortunately, uh, we learned later that uh, to, be, uh, to be more uh, active in who we choose to partner with and, um, and to make sure that we understand what types of charitable organizations are, are out there, such as um, uh, the 501c4 organizations uh, campaign only. And um, there are some characters out there that created um, dog park campaigns and funneled billions of dollars, and it was actually a big thing in the media, and um, did not send any money to dog for it. So that was a huge lesson for us because we had worked very hard to bring a lot of attention to that, and um, and none of the funds weren't there. So um, in the nonprofit space, it's usually um, it is usually ran by many um, uh, Europeans, American, uh, American uh, whites, and uh, and so on, and they tend to feel like they're the subject matter experts. And while they um, interview indigenous groups and then they go and present and they take the funding. So um, this time around when we uh, did Nubia Project, we were just very uh, much more careful on who we partnered with. And that, doesn't just in, that does not just include in the United States because we also have issues uh, within Sudan as well on who we can partner with. Some are not pan-Africanists. They are more pan-Arabists, and that's due to um, a loss of identity. Um, one of the campaigns we have is to save uh, the Nubian language, um, and that is because it's, it's been... Um, it's been basically uh, not just marginalized, but it is actually prevented from being taught in any of the schools in Egypt or Sudan. It is considered to be a dialect and not a language, and not just a dialect. It's, they call it Rutana, which means um, language of, of, of donkeys, you know, an animal. And, um, and it's become like a normal thing, people to call it that. And now there's so many activists, even the youth now, they, they try to bring much attention to this. And, and uh, uh, you, you'll find videos of people calling it what it is, uh, the Nubian language. And it does have a few um, uh, various ones, like Kinzi Dungalawi, Kadichi, Bidjit in the Nuba Mountains. Uh, because we have Nubas there as well, they are Nubian as well. And we, um, we also work with uh, those in South Sudan because my father was in the Foreign Service for 17 years and um, we made great allies with the South Sudanese when we were part of the Sudan's People's Liberation Movement. So the, these are just some of the... Uh, uh, Things that we've been involved in, and uh, it's uh, it's not just about Nubians, but it's about all the marginalized groups there. Um, 
and uh, that's why it's, it's important to highlight that and for people to understand that Sudan is uh, a black African country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember um, when uh, Professor Maynou, um you know, brought it to our attention um, around the dams and flooding the antiquities, um, you know, just and also people not being able to live in their homelands anymore because they were underwater. Um, there was a, you know, a huge um, support for uh, for saving, um, you know, paying more attention to what's happening in in the Sudan, and um, and so I was wondering, just for our audience that might not be aware of where is Nubia, where is the Sudan, <laughs> and um, and what do you mean by uh, uh, Nubian and Kushite ancient cultures? What do you mean when you say that? And um, yeah, I was wondering. Um, uh, Professor Maynou, um to maybe enlighten us. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I appreciate the question. Um, well, you know, um, Anubia. So we, we're talking about ancient uh, cultures in the northeast African area. So it's, it's the Nile Valley, and the Nile is the longest river in the world. So it's over forty-one hundred uh, miles long, and the Nile Basin encompasses 11 countries, so it's a huge region. But when we're referring to uh, Nubia, for example, uh, current Nubia, uh, it's southern Egypt and northern Sudan in that vast area, and um, and that's also a region where uh, we see the heartland of ancient Nubia that goes back at least 5,000 years at a very high level. Uh, there is, and we're going to be addressing this at the conference, but a lot of our understanding of, of these ancient civilizations have been misrepresented by foreigners, by outsiders who don't know anything about African culture and civilization. They've done very little work, very little research, plus they're anti-African. They're as negative as they come. So the further that we go south from Egypt into Sudan and further south, the more uh, obscure the knowledge and the more uh, anti-African the interpretation by historians, Egyptologists, archaeologists, so-called Nubiologists. They know little about those groups uh, in the middle part of Sudan, southern Sudan, south Sudan, southern Ethiopia. So for me, it's to understand ancient Kush as coming from the southern area and that the heartland of Kush was in current-day Sudan. Now remember, you had Egypt in the northeast corridor and south of that is Sudan, um, but then you have to look further south for the heartland of ancient Kush where the kings ruled from. The text says the kingdom of Kush, or they have titles with Kush, and their origins come from that area and further south. But up until now, for the most part, there's been no understanding of a, of a field of study that I've coined as Kushology or the, 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 the systematic study of ancient Kush. There's very little knowledge of that because we have old, biased, uh, colonial researchers who um, came in and they and they and they were stunned that the further they went south into Sudan, um, they saw literally black-skinned people 
who were clearly associated with the building of great monuments and great structures and colossal statues and towering pyramids and, and amazing temples. And so that area, uh, going further to the south, if south is little understood, but so Cush, is, Cush the kingdom of, of Cush, um, I follow the tradition of the field researcher, Dr. Chancellor Williams, who indicates that it is a, a vast empire. It's the, it goes back into the early Stone Age time period, but it's in the, it's in the more southern area in terms of its origin. And, uh, and then you have the great Nubian civilization, as I said, that go back at least beyond uh, 3400 BCE or so. As a, as a highly, and that's for over five, 5,400 years ago, as a highly developed centralized state around a king. And so um, people discuss this, but by me doing field work over the past 30 years, my perspective is very different because I'm not just looking at the writings of the past and going to archaeological sites such as pyramids, temples, tombs, ancient residential sites, but spending hundreds, in fact, thousands of hours in museums. Uh, going through with a the microscopic view of an optometrist to look at these artifacts and look at text and interpretation. So, so, um, so, so I've always argued, based on my work over the last thirty years, that Kush is the oldest of the civilizations. Nubia is absolutely at a high level. It comes out of that uh, context, and then. It was the great Nubian Empire, the great Nubian civilization that influenced what we all know as Kemet, or ancient Egypt. And there's no doubt that the foundation for the pharaonic Afrikoid kingship in Kemet came directly from Nubia, so that the Nile River flows from south to north, and, uh, and the flow of the high-level culture and civilization took the same route as well, from south to north. And this is why... We have to go to those southern areas and not just continue to follow Eurocentric anti-African races, but they are. I mean, the writings are absolutely atrocious as how the people in the south are just called southerners or the nilotic groups. There's no name to them. They're just some generic Africans who have been disrespected by the most uh, – uh, exalted of those researchers, such as George Reisner. He's so disrespectful in the early 20th century. George Reisner just gave an alphabetic uh, letter to the groups, the A group, the B group, the C group, the X group. No one names groups in that manner. They always name the groups based on the location that they uh, uh, arise from, or they'll name them based on the most prominent artifacts found among them or they might name them according to a particular site that they made a route from, but not with an alphabetical letter. It's, uh, but it's done in this case because of the disrespect by people like Reisner, who was as vicious as they come in his uh, consistent denial that anybody that was black-skinned in the southern area could have done anything to contribute. His position was that they, they've done nothing, that they've been inert, uh, people that never moved, never did anything, never contributed to humanity. So this is the context in which current-day so-called scholarship bases itself on. They use a chronology coming from that man, Reisner, who went into the area um, in the early 1900s looking for a white queen, and he couldn't find one. And so we start just making up a, folk, a fake and phony history, and about 98 99% 
of all researchers and laypersons and archaeologists, Egyptologists, and the rest of them, they follow that colonial framework. I don't have to because when we're doing primary or firsthand research, then we're able to go directly to the sites and sources and make our own independent analysis. And so this is why I think the work of Dr. Chancellor Williams doing research in the field and writers such as Drusilla Dungey Houston wrote the wonderful Ethiopians of the ancient Kushite Empire, these works have to be looked at and examined and elevated because they give an insight that we don't get from the outside scholarship coming from Europe and Euro-America. So, again, we're looking at Northeast Africa and the Nile Valley um, and, you know, the great Nubian culture of today. Uh, Southern Egypt, northern uh, Sudan is a part of that old great Nubian uh, empire and civilization that um, – it's highly respected, but what's uh, and we're, we're working to protect that. That's absolutely important, both to ancient and modern. But what is even less known is the influence, the extent, and the origins of ancient Kush. And this is what I've been pursuing now, as uh, I would call myself a Kushologist for many years. Mm, wow, thank you. And Sister Mayada, um, why don't you add to that? Because this is your homeland. I um, I just wanted to um, bring up why uh, you'll find so many uh, Nubians, whether they're in Egypt or Sudan, um, so passionate about preserving um, the monuments, the culture, the heritage. And one, uh, I want to add um, that. Uh, my dad, when my father, when he was sick, he actually did experience this migration, and um, and they uh, migrated from Kulubnaki. It was actually the last place where they uh, forced the Nubians there to move from their land before the flooding. It was in 1968, prior to the um, opening, uh, the official opening of the Aswan High Dam uh, in 1970. So um, that experience, even though I did not go through it, I, I, you know, you always hear like the family speak about it, you feel it, and you feel, you understand why they feel lost because they're tied to the land. You know, people that are riverine Africans from a tropical place, that they've lived for thousands of years into the desert and homes filled with asbestos and things like that and and expect them to just um, wither away. So uh, many of these Nubians, um, when they were young children, they were beaten in school for speaking their language until they learned Arabic. And they become they became so fluent in Arabic that they speak Arabic better than the Arabs themselves. They speak classical to um, to what people call Sudanese Arabic. Um, but many resisted as well. They would speak the language and teach it in um, in in a secret. And that's how my father was able to maintain um, the language. Um, and uh, you had great contributors uh, like uh, Dr. Mukhtar, I'm sorry, Mukhtar Kabara. He was a Nubian 
archaeologist and linguist. He passed away, unfortunately, the same year. He published the first Nubian language and grammar book uh, in 1997. And my father uh, proceeded to basically carry his work. Uh, you had others also as well as um, uh, that created keyboards and, uh, and the typeface for the language and so on. And there's already a foundation. And, and right now... Um, uh, it is by UNHCR. Uh, it's considered the indigenous language uh, decade. And we want the world to acknowledge um, our languages. We want Egypt and Sudan to make them official. Um, because so many have lost their identity because they lost their language. Not only their land, but their language as well. And there are other groups uh, in Sudan, such as uh, those um, uh, in the Nuba Mountains. And as we know, Sudan is now split between two countries. Um, so South Sudan does not have this issue with languages. They recognize all their languages as official languages. But Sudan, it is Arabic. And Arabic is not indigenous to Sudan. They teach Arabic. They teach... Uh, uh, Arabic history. Uh, you know, people understand even the ancient history or even the fact that there were various ethnic groups that were part of um, Kush and Nubia. And, uh, and I understood from um, a young child because of my dad that our origins began in the South. He always used to tell me that our ancestors came from the south, the beginning of the Nile, and that it would take three days before the Aswan High Dam was built from Wadi Hafa in Sudan to get to Aswan by boat. So once that dam was built, it not only uprooted one of the largest exodus in modern history, it also disconnected the Nubians in Sudan and the Nubians in Egypt from one another. Um, so that's that's what I wanted to add. <clears throat> wow. And if I can share, sister, sister wanted to add to what Sister Mahada said because I I know that you have uh, listeners that are culturally oriented and may have a little experience going to maybe study tours or something like that to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And um, yes. so one of the things to add to what Sister Mahada said is that. When uh, when groups go to Egypt, for example, and they go to Aswan, they uh, they really don't spend enough time to really learn about the Nubian culture there. They just kind of do the tourist thing, but they don't understand uh, the importance of really staying in those villages and spending time among the Nubian people to learn their situation, their culture, their plight and their hospitality, their great character. And one of the things that I do is that when I take educational tours, 15-day tours, we spend time in um, a, Yebu, a Yebu Island, so-called Elephantine, and we spend time there and we go to the Nubian school. And they're not always in session at the time, but a lot of times the school directors are able to 
gather the children and they'll uh, welcome us, you know, with, with song, and we'll go to the classrooms. And um, and one of the things is, that's uh, stunning to people who don't know this is that they learn Arabic, and the next language they learn is not Nubian. You can't teach that and speak that at school because that's an official setting. After Arabic is actually English, so people want to help the students. They have to bring English uh, books, you know, coloring books or any kind of books in English to help them learn English as an international language after Arabic, and they only speak Nubian in at home. And, you know, not all of them, you know, um, speak fluent Nubian. It's kind of like what we see here is that people will have a knowledge kind of a passive knowledge of the language because their parents or grandparents might speak a language from another country, but they, trying to fit into the modern, larger society, will tend to speak the official language and not the unofficial language that their parents and grandparents before them have spoken or may continue to speak. And so after a couple of generations, people lose the language because the you know the younger generation they don't really they have a passive understanding but they don't use it all the time when they have children then those children are further away from from the mother language and when you go to um, Aswan where the Aswan High Dam was built you see this very clearly that the dam did not help the Nubian people of course dams are to create hydroelectricity but uh, to supposedly improve life, that did not happen. And that Aswan High Dam finished in 1970, flooded 39 Nubian villages and displaced 120,000 Nubian people and uh, removed them from their homeland. And uh, Sister Mata mentioned the language is not recognized. And so people now are learning, these young folks, uh, English much more than they know and learn uh, um actual Nubian because it's unofficial and you can only speak it in unofficial locations such as the home. Wow. Wow, that's really, really terrible. Um, so to be racing that heritage is through uh, the language, and that's hap- that happens so much, um, you know, throughout, you know, the colonial march. Um, you know, you sort of think about... Uh, Indigenous people here, uh, indigenous uh, people here who no longer speak their language. And there are only like a handful of people that still have the language, if that many. So the history, the culture is disappearing because of that. So talk to us a bit about about this conference and um, uh, beginning on... October 1st, and how do people register, and who are some of the heavy hitters that you have presenting? I know both of you are all are presenting. Um, yeah, but talk about, you know, some of these other people that are going to be bringing the history and, and information, you know, direct <clears throat> from personal scholarship, you know, like it's not somebody talking about it from over there. These scholars are actually African people, people of the African diaspora, who have lived this history as a part of their cultural heritage. As as is, you know your, um, you know your involvement, uh, Sister Mayada. Um, I actually is it um 
I, I would like, is it possible to allow Professor Anthem to first go at, at this question uh, so he can give you more background on some of the speakers? And then I will, um, I will, I will add. That's okay. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, we have more than a dozen uh, presenters, more, more more than a dozen speakers from actually seven different countries. So we have presenters from the U.S., Canada, Egypt, Sudan, South Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, and also Japan. And uh, many of them um, are archaeologists that are actually doing and have done and continue to do field research at archaeological sites so they have perspective from the actual material remains that they've been excavating and studying and evaluating. So we have, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of the presenters are from Sudan, and these are professional archaeologists. Most people are probably not familiar with their work because they're not on, let's say, a lecture circuit that people would be familiar with in the U.S., but that has nothing to do and I repeat, a lecture circuit has nothing to do with real scholarship in the field. So what we decided to do is pull together a team of people from these various areas, these various countries, various disciplines, not only archaeology. We have a, uh, a geneticist. We have a person who's a hydrologist. That's his area of specialty. We have... Um, and, and, and we have people who've been doing this kind of work. I'll be presenting as well. My, my work is um, as a historian and primary researcher. And um, we also have, uh, we also have uh, uh, presenters from South Sudan that will be the, talking about the modern culture like the Nuer and the Dinka and uh, the Nuer cultural uh, markings or facial markings called scarification and the significance of that, uh, Gar. We have... Um, Presenters also from South Sudan. Uh, they're developing. Uh, this is a tremendous undertaking to develop a brand new indigenous African script called the Nilarian script. A whole way to write and conceptualize a, a whole language system. We talked about you know the Nubian language and preserving it, but creating a language that would be familiar to people in the in the region, you know, centering in South Sudan and that whole area. We also have a presenter from the Morsi group, and the Morsi is one of those indigenous groups in uh, southern Ethiopia, in that special region called the, the, the Southern Nations, Nationalities, and Peoples region. And the Morsi is one of those groups that, just like our Nubian brothers and sisters and some of the other groups in Sudan, like the Amri, the Manasir, that they've been displaced, and that the large dams are are threatening their cultural survival and their historical memory. And the Morsi is among those groups that are struggling for cultural survival in Sudan and really, honestly, battling the Ethiopian government. And these dams are not to help support local people because the World Commission on Dams made it clear back in November of 2000 that, that no dam should be built unless it has the demonstrable acceptance of the affected communities and that these communities are a part of the process all the way through. This is not done in Sudan and it's definitely not done in Ethiopia. So these groups are, are marginalized, they're uh, displaced, they're dislocated when dams are created because, uh, are built because it creates large lakes, large reservoirs. But not only that, but it stops and dams up a living river system. And in, in Ethiopia that's happened to a degree that now the Omo River these Omo River groups like the Morsi, the Kwaku, the, uh, the Yangon Tong, and so many other groups, the Carol, 
that they cannot rely now on the annual floods of the Omo River. And so it is uh, devastating. So with all of the issues that people may be familiar with, if not, they can look it up regarding drought in Ethiopia that has not affected in the past. It has never affected the Omo Valley groups because they've been able to rely on the living Omo River to help irrigate their crops. And they're pastoralists, so they have their cow, their sheep, and their animals rely on the water. But with the uh, Gebi 3 Dam, this has caused a, a tremendous disruption in the entire region, and it not only affects Ethiopia, that's why we wanted to have, you know, uh, one of those presenters from there, but it also affects northern Kenya because the Lake Turkana level, the levels have dropped dramatically since the building of a, a dam or a series of dams and the Omo River that spills into and empties into the Lake, Lake Turkana. So this is part of the lineup. We also have a lady uh, presenter from Japan who um, I, I met and uh, at the international conference, uh, the 14th, inter, 14th uh, International Conference for Nubian Studies several years ago, and she was among the most progressive presenters at the conference. She was challenging the, these uh, ideas by mainstream Egyptologists and archaeologists and mainstream so-called Nubiologists who come up with crazy terms like black pharaohs, which is misleading. It's a misrepresentation of the historical facts. People come up with this kind of term in order to try to say that the real black pharaohs, the real black people, didn't come around at all until the 25th dynasty. In other words, the 25th family of rulers to suggest that the first 24th family of rulers were not black. No one talks about the white emperors of Rome or the white uh, you know, kings in, in, in Greece, we assume that they're white. We assume that they're European. But this label of black pharaohs is to is to only say that these black folks came along much later from the south. They were imitators. They were interlopers that ruled for a very short period of time, and then they, you know, they kind of went away. So, but she, uh, the colleague from Japan, challenged this idea, challenged this notion. And we also have um, a professor, uh, 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 Dr. Hefni. And um, he's a, a Nubian brother from Egypt. And, you know, Egypt is the, uh, they officially considered, this This is the Arab Republic of Egypt. That's the name of the country. And they consider themselves officially to be Caucasoid. And, and, and Brother Mustafa Hefni, who Sister Mahada knows very well, he is somebody that's been fighting for years to not be classified as white or Caucasian. He is a, a Nubian brother. Uh, but in every sense of the word, and his official identity is not African, it's not black, it's not African-American, it's not Nubian, it's, it's, ca it's Caucasian. So we have his, him telling his story so people understand what this uh, cultural cleansing is really about, to whitewash, to culturally cleanse, to, dis, to, dis, uh, to totally dismiss the, the identity of people of African descent. So our conference is, is broad, it's diverse, it's about historical knowledge, but it's also about contemporary problems as well. And so, um, you know, these colleagues, and, and, and of course, uh, Sister Mahada's father, um, uh, former retired ambassador to the U.S., uh, Baba Nuruddin uh, Abdul Manin, he's going to be, be talking about, as she was discussing just a minute ago, um, the Nubian language and the significance of it. His book, uh, written a handful of years ago, is also available for the conference, as long as my, as well as my book, A History of African Civilization. So people who register uh, will not only get Baba's book uh, if they want to just add a few extra dollars, but my book as well. So Baba will be speaking, uh, uh, Baba Nuruddin, that is, about uh, his um, his 
and the significance of maintaining and uh, I would say revitalizing the Nubian language as well. Mm, wow. How exciting. And so how do people how do people register and will there be um can people get continuing education or credits and things like that and will there be any follow-ups? I know um you take people on educational um tours of the motherland. Um uh Professor Maynu is wondering uh again, will there be any follow-up and and again tell people how they can um register uh, for this historic conference? Well, I'll, I'll just mention this, and then I'll turn it over to Sister Maada. But for the conference, uh, it's, it's a virtual conference. People can register uh, uh, at our website, which is kushitenubian.org. And that's Kushite with a K, K-U-S-H-I-T-E, kushitenubian.org. And then go to the link with the 2021 virtual conference, and people can register there for the entire conference, uh, three days, uh, October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's next week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and um, they can uh, register that way. And then, but it's a working conference, so it's not just for people to get new ideas, new information, new insight, but a working conference, meaning that what we're covering on. Uh, those first two days, October 1st and 2nd, day three, we're putting together um, the process to really deal with solutions to some of the problems that are raised throughout the conference so that it's truly a working conference where there will be follow-up to address the critical issues that uh, affect the communities that um, that we're discussing at the conference. So that's what our, our, our goal is, is to make sure that the conference is informative but equally important practical and there's something to do rather than just say wow that was great information nope information without actualization is useless the purpose of sharing information is to clarify the work that has to be done and that's what mm-hmm. uh our conference is really about and so uh they can go and and register uh, for the entire conference and and take full advantage of um this truly historic event it hasn't been done before on this scale that's that's excellent, and I presume that um, you know when people go to the website and they look at the Save Nubia Project campaign, your three goals um, uh, to conduct uh, field research to document, record, and publish historical and archaeological evidence on the importance of historic northern and eastern Sudan regions, to present compelling documentation that this rich archaeological region should be designated a world a net work of UNESCO World Heritage Sites at Risk, which would help protect the region from large dam construction and inundation. There are other sources of energy available in Sudan, such as solar panels, microhydro, and wind turbines. And three, assist the local Nubian people near the second and third uh, cataracts to build a series of museums to help preserve their heritage. And then, um, Sister Mayada, um, you have uh, three um, uh, objectives as well for the Nubia Project, and I don't know if you want me to read them or do you want to just say it um, as you also now contribute to the ongoing conversation about this particular conference. Okay, well, um, 
our main objective is um, uh, to preserve the archaeological sites and uh, some damming and uh, to also um, promote uh, the Nubian language as an official language and to actually get it to become an official language in uh, Sudan and Egypt. After Sudan's uh, revolution of uh, December 19, 2019, we feel there will actually be uh, a lot more realistic and less resistant. And uh, my father's book is actually a um, applied ling- linguistics book, book, which means that you can teach it in a classroom setting, and that's what it's for. And... Uh, the purpose of that is to get it to uh, in as in many hands as possible. Uh, there's examples of Native American groups in Canada, for instance, who had their language extinct and they were able to bring it back from the dead in a matter of three years within their group. And for us, our language is not extinct. It's spoken by over four million uh, Nubians between Egypt and Sudan, but it is just, again, not taught in a public setting. It's, it's actually banned, uh, is the proper term for it. It's banned. So, and and the world doesn't know this, really. There's a lot of people that are surprised when you tell them this. And, um, and, and it is a deliberate Arabization. My father calls it cultural cleansing. Um, and... Uh, and it's denied, and the main culprit of this is actually um, uh, Egypt. And Sudan uh, has always been the tale of Egypt since independence. So um, recently it, it, it's been moving a different direction after the revolution. Um, but prior to that, it's, uh, it's been very um, hard to get any type of support from the government because we were considered enemies. Yeah, and you also mentioned um, <clears throat> in the Anubia Project that um, the third one is to uh, stop the sale of your ancestral lands. Um, do you want to talk about that as well? Right, yeah, that's actually a very important one. So mm-hmm. um, Sudan and, and Africa, uh, Africa, you have... Um, the Congo, for instance, has uh, most land that's owned by foreigners. The country that has uh, that comes to number two is Sudan, and um, a lot of the uh, land that is fertile, um, where Nubians reside and so on, is being sold to Syrians, uh, to Saudis, to Egyptian farmers. Um, three years ago, Egypt struck a deal, uh, before this result, by the way, uh, where they would uh, sell a lot of this land near Halfa, uh, the, the new Halfa, Halfa Zedida, um, to Egyptian farmers, like three million. You know, so it's, it's, it's not, so what, what, it, what it promotes is uh, population replacement as well. So, um, and uh and it takes um it, it it again it basically 
uh, forces people to migrate again before you know uh, so they keep experiencing the same repeated marginalization and uh and um, if if we just have a blind eye uh they'll eliminate us you know we'll just be another group that people consider to be uh another arabized african group So, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to make uh, make this appear like all doom and gloom. It's actually a very great thing that we're doing this conference. So, mm-hmm. and we're not uh, the type that gives up. I don't want. You know, it's not. It's not <laughs> depressing. It's actually a great thing when you see so many people come together working for that objective, and and that's that's what's keeping everything uh, going. And and it's it's it, we want um, we want solutions. We don't want to just lecture, as Professor Anthem said. So, mm-hmm. and in uh, a coalition, the bigger the coalition, uh, the greater, you know, the impact. Yeah. Um, what I was mentioning um, to Professor Maynou last week was how uh, balanced it is um, insofar as gender. There are women uh, presenters, not just men at this conference, which is um, not always the case um, in the West. Uh, Many times uh, it's real male-centered and real male-heavy. And uh, so I'm really, really, I was really happy to see so many stunning, beautiful African diaspora women presenting scholars. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Uh, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and and about your scholarship. Well, I, I, I wouldn't, con- I don't, I'm not a, I would not consider myself a scholar. I'm, I'm more of an, an activist or an organizer. Um, mm-hmm. My father would be more of the scholar. He's the linguist. Though. I am uh, moving that direction just to make sure that it you know, the path continues um, because then you'll have revisionists creating things uh, and not understanding the foundation and the roots of the Nubian language. Um, so um, this is going to be a generational, um, a generational fight. So I, you know, I'm bringing my children into this, and my friends' children, and they're bringing them into it. Things like that, right. so it's a community mm-hmm. thing. Um, but there are, for instance, uh, you have um, Professor Yamal. She is uh, a new heir. She is actually uh, she deals. She was part of the um, refugees that were sent to Ethiopia. So she's also multilingual. Uh, she speaks. Uh, you know, Ethiopian languages and her language and uh, English, Arabic, so on, and very phenomenal. So, and she takes a very unique perspective to um, speak about conflict resolution by using um, tradition from her ethnic group, you know, and uh, that's why we uh, have her speaking on the Gar um, markings or as some people try to call them scarification. Uh, I don't 
hear anyone calling tattoos scarifications, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she's um, she's phenomenal, and uh, you when you listen to her, you you'll not just take away uh, the this idea that okay, yes, um, her ethnic group was part of ancient Kush because I see it in the artifacts, but you'll actually understand what the markings mean and what the tradition is and why it's important for the survival of, you know, of their uh, group as well as such as the Dinka, for instance, as well. Um, and you'll walk away with um, having a glimpse of what it is to speak to uh, indigenous groups and what it means to them, you know, what their struggle is. And that's what part of what Professor Anthem does in his field research, and I'm not, I don't want to speak for him, you know. So it's, it's really important to not use VMI Denial Valley only. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always good to bring in the human aspect and, and understand that a lot of these groups still exist today, and, and the modern world should not swallow them. Mm. Yeah, the modern world should not swallow them. Yeah, definitely. Um, in our closing minutes, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity, um, uh, Professor Maynu, if you'd like to tell us a story about your, you know, you you would tell us in some of your presentations here in Oakland about some of the wonderful people you met in your um, various um uh, digs and tours, uh, some of the stories of of some of the wonderful people that you've met. Um, so I don't know, maybe you might we might want to end with a story uh, to sort of uh, maybe bring a a human picture um, to what we've been talking about. Leave people with an image. Oh wow! There's so many, uh, so many, so many. <laughs> Every time I go back, it's like the greatest and most profound experience. But I'm thinking, mm-hmm. uh, wow, about so many. But you know, one of the persons that stands out in my travels is uh, uh, Elder Hamdi, one of the great Nubian elders who passed a few years ago. And Elder mm-hmm. Hamdi and his intimate knowledge of Nubian culture, Nubian history, and Nubian language. And every time I would go to, um, like, the Aswan area in southern Egypt, he would always break away from what he was doing to make time for me or or if I was leading an educational group to take away. Uh, he would he would literally break away. I remember one time we were on the Nile, and I was in a boat going in one direction. He was in a boat going in another direction. And we weren't that far apart, so we could see the people on the other boat. I said, wait, that looks like Elder Hamdi. And he saw that it was me, so <laughs> it's funny. So uh, at all this boat traffic in the middle of the day, we stop our boat, <laughs> turn around, we meet. We rendezvous right there in the middle of the now for a minute so we can coordinate. And, uh, you know, because not everybody has phones and, and so forth, so we can rendezvous, set up a uh, time to go and meet. And this is Elder Hamdi that if you read a – um, guidebook about Nubian culture and history. Elder Hamdi would be in that guidebook, and um, and he would just be so gracious. And so I have been appreciative to meet appreciative to meet him and so many other people. I've had a chance to spend time with chiefs, uh, kings, leaders, and different communities that give insight 
about their cultural ways, their cultural practices, and this stands out. And people, you know, what always is amazing is the, the, the um, without hesitation or reservation, people taking time out of their day, days, to help, to assist, because they're inspired that a brother from another place who is just from another mother, but we are, you know, in the same same general family is coming to learn from them and also share ideas and ancient images and concepts with them to get their input, and they'll just take time out. And you can't pay them because it's disrespectful to pay people who are doing it out of their largesse, out of their kindness, out of their sense of familyhood. So you can't disrespect people and just give them money. That's an American thing, no. Uh, so they don't allow that. And, I, and I've had that in so many places, not only in Nubia, but um, other places too. You know, when I travel uh, to go to these very isolated communities, and this is what stands out is how welcoming, whereas other people say, oh, man, don't you, aren't you afraid? Isn't it dangerous? Or uh, they probably don't rec- uh, um, recognize you right away. It probably takes a while to win their trust. I said, sir, that's probably what happens most of the time, and that has not been my situation at all. People have been, if they are upset with me with anything, they're upset because I can't stay longer, that I can't stay a couple of days, and, you know, we we just got so many places to go to where we're in the field. But anyway, I would say Elder Hamdi and all of these other uh, high-esteemed individuals, uh, and sometimes they call them heroes, that spend the time to make sure that I get it right so I can amplify their voice and their message to the rest of the larger larger country and the community. So that's what I would share. And really, Sister Wanda, uh, you know, for people to register for our conference, they'll get, you know, what I'm sharing and a whole lot more, and they can register for the entire conference. Uh, it's only $75 for uh, a historic event. If people are elders or students, then it's only 25 for the entire conference. So they could they could go to our website, org, and the details are there to register. Or if they have a question, they can simply email at info at org, and they can, um, uh, if they are an elder, 65 or older, they can get that discount. Or if they're a full-time student, then there's a discount available if they um, can show that they really are a student. So we look forward to people joining us, and they will not forget this event and, uh, and nor are we going to just have an event and just go away. This event is to launch a uh, you know, long-term project. So as Sister Mahada said, it's, it's um, challenges, but at the same time it's to correct the history because we have to have a clear memory of who we have been in the past so we can move forward in the future to be the mighty people that we've always been uh, throughout the millennia. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly, certainly. Yes, I want to let our audience know that, again, we've been speaking to um, Professor Maynou Ampin and Sister Mayada Manan Brake talking about the Kushat Nubian Heritage International Conference Preserving an African Legacy, October 1st through 3rd. It's a virtual conference, and... um, it's going to be really, really phenomenal, historic, first of its kind, and uh, and as um, Professor Maynou mentioned, it's a working conference, so you'll be able to actually, you know, be able to get involved and and you know, help preserve these um, these important um, places um, that are uh, at risk. So thank you both again so much for joining us and look forward to seeing you next weekend. 
Thank you. Thank you, Sister Wanda. And we know you'll be there as the great reporter that you are. So we look forward <laughs> to having your <laughs> your presence <Hi>. and your voice. <laughs> so oh, you're quite welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Congratulations on you know the upcoming conference and and all the work that is still going into making sure that it is what you want it to be. All the best. <laughs> Thank you, sister. All right, peace and blessings. Peace and blessings. Uh, good morning, Delphio Marcellus. How are you? Very fine. Good to hear you got it going on, as always. <laughs> yes, yes. So before I read your bio from your website, how are things going for you Um is everybody having electricity that. yet? Um, how are things there in New Orleans after Ida? Well, I can't speak for everyone, but most people, I would imagine mm-hmm. at this point, uh, mm-hmm. most people have electricity. And, you know, the, the problem isn't so much New Orleans. It's the uh, outlying areas, you know, yes. places mm-hmm. maybe to the kind of the northeast or, uh, mm-hmm. where we are uh, that often have trouble, those who are you know closer to the water than us. Right. Um, so you know, it's kind of it's more of a sexy thing. This oh, New Orleans is in peril. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, the great news catch uh, to, mm-hmm. to mention New Orleans. But you know, saying not to say you know, hurricane season is just what happens. It, it's mm-hmm. every year we have to prepare for it. And uh, this year we were without electricity for seven days. I was personally. Um, mm-hmm. And then last year it was five days. So, you know, the year before that, I don't recall, but it was a couple of days. So it's just one of those things that you know it's coming and you you prepare for it and uh, you either stay or you leave and wait for it to, to subside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of wind and people um, lost their roofs and um, and there was – there was a lot of flooding besides not having electricity in the northeast part of of that area going out, I guess, toward the airport as well. Um, and But there were a lot of trees that were, were um, felled that the wind blew down. And there were trees yeah, that's um, that were lying around with, you could see their roots, I mean, like old trees. Um, right. Yeah. No, that's what does true. it look and like that now? Was, that mm-hmm. that was something that was uh I'm not in town right now at the moment, but that was something that was rather surprising. The mm. the number of trees that were uh you know, that came down. But uh mm-hmm. and I I don't know, you know, I it's it's so much uh constant to me, negativity in the news and the media. I try not to watch the news and uh mm-hmm. <laughs> it was far more it looks far more devastating from the outside, I would imagine, than for us who were there when the hurricane occurred. So where I was, I stayed when it occurred, and it wasn't so exciting. Um, but then afterward, we could see that a lot of trees had fallen down. And you know, in that moment, it's great to see the, the hundreds of workers, and you saw all kind of utility trucks from different uh, neighboring cities and towns that came in to really help out. And that's the great thing to me about any kind of devastation and tragedy is that it brings out the best in the human spirit when folks have to come together and and band together. So that was uh it was great to see during Hurricane Katrina and or afterward I should say and great to see now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you stayed. Um, oh yeah. 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 Wow. I stayed in, in mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we I was in a hotel, and then the power went out, and they were like, "Okay, y'all got to go." So then we mm-hmm. went up to Alabama and stayed mm-hmm. a couple of days. So yeah. yeah. It, mm-hmm. What are you gonna do? Yeah, we. Yeah, we we we've had conversation about um, you know, some of the uh uh the more I don't know, they're probably all memorable cuz I don't live in 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 a town where there there are hurricanes. We have earthquakes here. Um so, you know, when I see hurricanes coming through and you all like evacuating or staying or returning, I'm like, "Oh my goodness." Um, you know, because I have family there as well. Um, but I was speaking to um, Baba uh, Kalamu Yasalam and his daughter um, Asante and uh, and Malik Rahim and uh, some other folks, uh, Robert King and Albert Wood Fox and uh, my cousins and my aunties. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, um, you know, everybody is doing okay. Um, most recently evacuated. I was just wondering, um, sort of, uh, are you? So you said you're not, you're not home. Um, how, how are, um, how is the musicians' village? Um, how are those folks doing? Um, you know, the other, you know, family and friends that are are there. Yeah, I'm, I don't actually live close to the musicians' village. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't actually have a much contact with anyone, so I can't say uh, specifically offhand. I didn't mm-hmm. hear of anyone, you know, going over to the other side at this point. So I'd imagine that the, uh, you know, folks fared okay. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So what are you up to presently? You said you're not you're not home right now. Are you working somewhere? Right. I'm taking a, a got a little bit of a respite here in Detroit. I was just in Denver, Colorado. We played a place called Estes Park and then a uh, night in Denver. And before that, we were in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities Jazz Festival, which was yeah. really great. You know, they have a great outdoor park, about 3,000 people mm-hmm. there. And uh, we closed out the festival. So that was that was fun. And interesting band. I've got uh, Marvin Smitty Smith. Who is the drummer? He spent a couple couple years on Jay Leno's Tonight Show, but really one of the great drummers in the world. And uh, mm-hmm. David Paulfus, he's a bassist who's from St. Louis, and he's played with me for a while. Mark Gross on saxophone, and a young man uh, from Connecticut, Kristen Sands on piano, and he's mm-hmm. kind of making some noise. He has his own trio, but it's nice. you know it's, it's great to be out, yeah great to be out there and playing and swinging again and being in front of the people and, you know, bringing some joy and merriment into everybody's mm-hmm. lives. <laughs> you know, that's really what our, that's what our gig is. That's what we got to do. So, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what we're trying to work out how to do that. And uh, that's what's interesting to me about this, the landscape of New Orleans music is, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, the musicians were still there, the, the New Orleans musicians. And we came up with kind of that sound that represented the time afterward, and I'm looking forward to what's what's the next sound going to be. You know, what are mm. we going to do? What are we going to come up with? So that's kind of 
it's going to be interesting to see what we uh, what we come up with. Yeah, yeah, that's really a, that's going to be really be great to see what do you come up with. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because um, you know, one thinks about a sound uh, for you know a region or a geography um, as as sort of like it's it stays that way. Like you know it, you know, like you stay with the roots of it, um, not necessarily um, thinking about you know where do you take it next. But of course, of course, it evolves because otherwise, how could it hang on? You know, how could it? have such a long trajectory if it didn't um you know whether right. it wasn't one, one, of the, the, mm-hmm. one, one of the challenges you hear that you're just talking about is especially after hurricane katrina are the number of transplant musicians who come in mm-hmm. town and it, you know they provide a service and they they have a substantial amount of work um and the but the reality is and, and it's cool everybody's got their hustle or got to have their gig but it's the New Orleans musicians that we have to focus on because they're going to come up with the actual original sound. Mm-hmm. You know, folks who are from Topeka, Kansas, nothing against Topeka. I love it. It's a great place. Not necessarily going to come to New Orleans and create the new sound of New Orleans music. So that's mm-hmm. just something that we're aware of, really trying to, to stay with the younger generation, generations, and hopefully help to inspire them to uh, to come up with what it is. Mhm. Yeah, cuz you know you um you know you work with young people in music theater, education, um um you know you've written a children's book. Um and then I noticed on the website that um there's a um a new uh a Katrina um musical oh no okay so no there was a play that was written a play. by okay. a young lady named uh, Erica Dispenza I think there's another name in there that I'm forgetting but hmm. uh, she wrote a play called Shadowland and the it's it's placed after Hurricane Katrina and the story is about okay. a mother and a daughter the mother is up in in, in age the daughter's trying to convince her to sell Shadowland, which was an old club, first place where black folk had it. The musicians had a chance to come in the air-conditioned place and play. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's been, it was around on Washington Avenue uptown, actually down the street from where I live, for a number of years. And now it's falling into disrepair. And the daughter's like, look, Ma, let's just grab the money and run. And the mother's like, no, 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 no. that's not what's going to happen. So I wrote the original music to accompany the play, but it's okay. a very uh, the play is expertly written and it's a great theme, and it, it really captures the vibe of New Orleans and the relationship between the mother and daughter. Oh, nice, nice. And that's called that's called Shadowland. I think I said that, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. it's it was on the public theater website, which is uh, out of New York City the public theater, Shadowland. So I composed the music. That was good. And I had a couple of good songs came out of it. And it's always mm-hmm. great to have an opportunity to, to create something new and also to collaborate. Yeah, yeah, you are a great collaborator. Um wondering um, if you have any 
um, favorite collaboration? I mean, the one, you know, you had with your dad, that wonderful uh, CD that you did together, that was wonderful. I was wondering if you have any um, collaborations that are just like, oh, man, this was so awesome. I mean, the one that um, I I just love, um, your, your CD party music, I just... So New Orleans and so wonderful. But then I also really enjoyed um, the last time I saw you um, in Congo Square after we, and I mentioned it before when we spoke, and, you know, we did that long 20-mile walk <laughs> along the um, um, the path that our ancestors were walking to freedom. You know, if they could get to New Orleans, you know, they could end slavery, end enslavement of our people. And that was just such a wonderful um, welcoming that, you know, you and the musicians um, shared with us when we got there to Congo Square. It was so beautiful. It was really, really wonderful. Yeah, and that was the, the celebration of the 1811 mm-hmm. slave yes. revolt. And you know these folks right. they sacrificed their their lives, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. you know a lot of a lot of the trouble we have in, in the country now, as far as race relations, it stems from the fact that every group that has ever come against the United States government has paid the price, as we're witnessing with this what's going on in the Middle East right now with Afghanistan, et cetera. Et cetera. But anybody coming up against the United States government paid the ultimate price, except for the Confederacy. And a lot of the problems we have now stems from the fact that the Confederate uh, generals were allowed to wage war against the country, and then not only were they allowed to to, make, to keep their lives and their freedoms, uh, the, the United States government and the different states allowed monuments to be erected and uh, somehow made these individuals into heroes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, the problems that we have now, it stems from that. So if you got the folks in 1811, they just were like, look, we're tired of this. You know, we're, they were revolting against the, kind of the Confederate mindset. Of course, they all lost their lives. Then you got John Brown, who many say kind of instigated or sped up the occurrence of the Civil War. He had the raid on Harper's Ferry in the 1860s. What was it, 61? I don't know the exact date, but... He and his crew, they paid for it with their lives. Mm-hmm. Now we have Confederate states get together. They're fighting against the United States government. They lose, of course, thankfully, but uh, they didn't pay the ultimate price. So it's just what it is. So we have to figure out how to constantly negotiate on behalf of the feelings, I think, of the government back then. It's a constant mm-hmm. negotiation that we're going to always have to do. And uh, it's just, you know, it's part of everyday life that we just have to embrace and say, well, this is what it is, much like our ancestors embraced it. They embraced what it was, and they said, we're going to do the best we can with this. So that's that's where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're um, you know, you're really well known for um, sort of, you know, literally holding it down. Um, I mean, you you are really consistent. Um, in 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 the values that you uphold around you know around our um, our legacy and our heritage you know as a person you know in 
the blackest town in in the nation. You know that was that was the claim. New Orleans was like its own country, um, and 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 so as one of those families, and as a person who was raised as a conscious person, um, you know you you know what you're worth, no matter what you know others are saying and what other people you know that don't have the knowledge or you know choose to not um uh i guess uphold you know those particular values that our ancestors fought so hard for um and I'm going to read your bio uh you toured internationally with jazz legends such as no, Rico, no, no, let's not, no 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 let's no, not no? no don't let's not read oh. the bio no folks can find that they can go to the book. website I'm just saying, okay. you want to see the bio, go to dmarcellus.com. <laughs> I mean, you know, sure. we don't no have problem. to read that, you know. Uh, we we can talk, all right? We got 11 minutes okay. left. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or we can end right. early, and then you can read the bio. No, and, you know, no, I want you to talk. <laughs> go ahead and talk. <laughs> talk about this legacy <laughs> that you've been holding down. <laughs> No, I don't think it, it's at all me, um, but I am fortunate that I grew up around a lot of older people, uh, specifically my great-uncle Alphonse and his wife, my aunt Marguerite. And now Alphonse, he by all appearances was a white man. And if he had, if he was Negro, it was by a couple of drops. <laughs> it wasn't by a lot. But that was not uncommon back in those days that, you know, especially when you think of the Creoles and we kind of overlooked the fact that laws were in place to allow uh, owners to rape Americans. And, you know, so the way to get around it is to, well, we have to legalize this raping and this constant violation. So we'll just say that these are their property, the slaves. And that's something that we're still trying to overcome is that one description, you know, and everybody's familiar with it, you know, master and slave. So somehow now it means all white folks were masters, all Negroes were slaves, which certainly was not the case, but that's kind of how we view it. And it's just one of the things that we have to kind of overcome and just realize that you have to embrace the, the goodness and the righteousness in all people, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, from a financial standpoint of view, it's been important to uphold that kind of status quo. And uh, it's a constant battle. And that's what, you know, it's not I'm trying to, to follow in the stead of, of many of the older people that I knew, and they were just about righteousness, which is what we seem like we've been losing. I had a conversation with a guy. He's a brother who is a Republican. And I was telling him that one of the, challenges in America is that for many years black folk represented the, the consciousness of America. We represented the social consciousness because of the negotiation that the folks who were enslaved, it, it was a constant thing that they were trying to figure out of how do I make this situation work? And that provided a certain type of consciousness. Then after the civil rights movement, then it was like, ah, we won. We got what we wanted. Equal rights, but at least on paper. So I think we've lost that idea. We've lost the understanding of the importance of who our ancestors were and who we are and the beauty that we have inside. 
And it's just, it doesn't have to be this constant, I, I just consider the negativity drags you down that we see all of the time in the news media. That's kind of taken over the country. And, you know, we got to get back to what we can actually do. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Folks who can do something need to do that. And mm-hmm. black folks have shown they not only have that type of social consciousness, but that that ability to uplift people and to be celebratory. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Folks can say, you know, they can give various reasons why it's like that. You know, or they're just happy. They're happy to be working in the fields. They're happy, you know, there's different ways, uh, different narratives that were created to devalue what black folks have represented. Man, in school, we just got to embrace that, see what it is, and keep on stepping. And that's what we are trying to do. <laughs> you know, just like what you're doing, you know, it's an important outlet. Folks can come on and present their views. That's, you know, we all have to chip in where we can, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's so true. So um, what's going on with you and the young people? Um. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting now, the, the young people, because of the various platforms, TikTok and Facebook and, and, and Twitter, like the young people, to me, have a, a greater platform than they need to have at this particular point. So what happens is I'm finding there's more of a challenge, not only to the authority, but to the experience that older people have. And it's really, hmm, it's challenging. It's not to say that the older people had everything right, but it's not, you know, life can't be the Disney Channel. Life can't be where the adults are all not hip and the kids are all cool and the adults are doing everything the way the kids want it to happen. So that's one of the challenges that that we're having now is just, uh, you know, keeping the kids on track. And you have to, we have to respect what they're going through, but at the same time, you know, like it ain't easy out here. Just life as a generality is all the things that you have to juggle. It's important for for grown-ups, for grown folks to, to be able to present this to kids and to be respected. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Um, I'm still, we're still working with them, um, but now I think there's going to be a shift um, try to get to more of what, what would be considered the lower income, you know, the kids that really have that, have a thirst and a hunger. You know, I mean, middle class is cool, but, you know, we talk about white privilege. Well, that's privilege there. That's that mm-hmm. <laughs> middle class Negro privilege, which isn't acknowledged. You know, it's different, but uh, Mm -hmm. we need to really try to make sure everyone, especially the folks who don't have the financial resources, that they have a certain kind of access to information. So that's that's kind of the direction we're going in in New Orleans, to really reach more of the kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You ever um, think about... um, uh, I mean, because art, you know, for you, it seems like just just is like breathing. It's a part of your your DNA. Do you ever think about? Um, and speaking of, you know, young people who don't have access 
um, and who definitely, you know, given given opportunity, would not necessarily um, um, take it for granted. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, so what would you do if you didn't have this voice? Um, like, because you, you know, you, you know, you create on a lot of different le- levels. I mean, you you write, you know, you compose. Uh, you compose really well. <laughs> you know, you you play, you know, instruments, and um, and it's just like I don't know, like what if you didn't have, you know, this way of communicating? Um, you ever think about that? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I. I I do uh, do what I can, certainly, and there's, there's plenty of folks who, who are out here doing it. And, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't take that for granted. I never think about mm-hmm. what if I didn't, but I don't take take it for granted, and I do think that it's certainly important, like I, I mentioned earlier, those who can do should do. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's taken me a number of, you know, I've been at it for so long that I have a, a yeah. good sense now of, you know what I can contribute, and it's important to me to to, to maintain that. And I remember I was at a college, a college, I think it was Wesleyan College in Connecticut, years ago. And I went to talk to the students in the first. This is the early '90s. First thing I said to them was, "I do not want to talk about rap music." And sure enough, within ten minutes, we were talking about rap music <laughs> because that was that was important to them. And they mentioned, I don't remember who the artist was. And finally I said to them, look, this person, they've probably, their record probably sold a million plus copies. You know, I put up my record, it might have sold 50, 60,000, which was a lot, which is a lot now. Mm-hmm. So my CD maybe has sold less than a tenth of the copies. But I said, when you listen to that person's CD from the front to the back, and you listen to my CD from the front to the back, you know something very important about who we are as people and what we believe in because it comes through in our music and our message. And that's all we can do mm-hmm. It's just, you know, check out what's going on. And as an artist, we have a responsibility to represent who we are and what we believe in through our music. And even though rap is different because they have words and, and what we play in jazz is more abstract, if you really listen, you have an understanding of, you know, the person's level of kind of the emotional sensitivity or the kind of intellect they're putting into it, thought process. It's just a question of, you know, folks checking it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly, yeah. So where are you going to be next so people can check you out? On my way to Fredonia, New York. Um, this weekend, Saturday, there's a SU, SUNY, SUNY Fredonia, whatever S-U-N-Y stands for. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, we'll be there and then back home in New Orleans. We've got some gigs in the middle of October. Uh, in mm-hmm. Snug Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, well, no, okay. actually, we're going, to, we're going to a couple of different We'll be in San Diego, the 2nd and 3rd oh. mm-hmm. of October. Then we go to St. Oh, Louis wow. on, like, the 14th. Mm-hmm. 
Nice, nice. Well, belated happy birthday. Did you do anything big this year? For the birthday? Yes, a belated happy birthday. Did you do anything big this year? Oh, thank you. No, no. You know, we had the double nickel last year. so Yeah, you did. Uh, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing this year, but uh, it's always every day above ground is a great day. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'm saying here, it's, it's overcast, it's drizzling, it's a gray day. Said, boy, but it's a beautiful day to be alive. Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah, certainly. So, uh, and and happy, um, happy first day of fall. It's autumn. Now. Is that the day? Yeah, wow. yeah. Getting all these. Yeah, today is the equinox. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a killing song by Coltrane. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, ah, I want to get, get to that space. <laughs> get to that space to where I can, uh, you know, be more creative all the time. And it's just, you know, it's just something that, uh, that I have to do. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, you know, for, um, you know, popping in to let us know how you're doing and what you've been up to. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna play So New Orleans from your jazz party because I just love that CD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of our favorites. And uh, we got something else. In fact, we're doing a Mardi Gras CD next. So, ooh, ooh, when's that gonna some, be yeah, out? Some great new one, probably for Mardi Gras next year, which will either be end of okay. February or beginning of March. Oh, super, so, super. That's it. We So New Orleans. Yes, you are. You're so New Orleans. (laughs) You certainly do. You represent, as they say. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. All right, always great to talk to you, and uh, please keep it going. All right, you take good care. (laughs) All right, I'll catch you later. Okay, bye-bye. All right, later.
remember when rent was 500 bucks. But in this new New Orleans, yeah, 2500 If you got good luck, I'm so New Orleans. It makes me proud that Louis Armstrong was a Zulu king. That let me know from an early age, I could do just about anything. I'm so New Orleans, man, this music here, it can change my life. I love my city, love my culture. Mr. Hamp in them purple nights, I'm so New Orleans. You know we used to have parades out in the east. Ice skating at the plaza, Sunday skate country, the death at Bunch Train Beach. I'm so New Orleans. Man, I really miss those lemon hue pies. Yeah, come smoke my peace pipe. It'll put some tears up in your eyes. I'm so New Orleans. I remember back when the Honorable Dutch Moriel was our mayor. Our city seen some hard times, but we blessed with love and prayer. I'm so New Orleans, but Charity Hospital ain't where I was born. Yeah, Big Daddy's grown. Six foot two chocolate. Let me blow some of this horn. Marching through the schoolhouse door. Other skate ring in the night wall. The one with those hardwood floors. I'm so New Orleans. From Jazz Fest to Second Line Parade. Yeah, strike up the bang, cause we'll find a reason to party every day. I'm so New Orleans. 12 inches, extra butter. Yeah, I'm talking about a shrimp pool boy. Girl, get your mind out the gutter. I'm so New Orleans. Red beans on Monday. And daiquiris to go. This here be them African grooves. Yeah, snuff your feet on the floor. I'm so New Orleans. We celebrate life out here in East Street. You can do what you want. Roll with it, baby. Shake that thing for me. I'm so New Orleans. I like to make it do just what it do. And I'm swinging with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, baby. Bringing that party to you. from Jazz Party, uh, Delphio Marcellus. Celebration of the, gosh, the resilience and uh, legacy that is New Orleans. And we are so excited to be continuing our conversation with Louis Jordan, who's going to be having this wonderful concert uh, with Music at Large featuring a whole lot of phenomenal folks, and I'll let him tell us all about it. Good morning, Lewis. Thank you so much for getting up so early. <laughs> Good morning, Wanda. to talk about this great concert coming up on the 27th at Freight and Savage in Berkeley. Yes. Uh, next Monday, Monday night at 7.30. Yes, coming up music. quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's been uh, We've been working on it for a while, and uh, it seemed like okay. it was in the in the distance, but then here it is. Now here it is. It's 
Yeah. You know, I was yeah. so I was uh, I was so much listening into listening to what Delphia was saying, what you were saying, uh, mm-hmm. talking that at, at a certain point I realized, oh wait a minute, I'm supposed to call in. <laughs> I like I completely <laughs> forgotten. I was so into the show. Um, yeah, but that so if I can tell you about the people on the gig. Um, yeah, please. Yes, Andy yeah. Poindexter. Ooh, love yeah. Andy. Yes, Andy Poindexter mm-hmm. is there on violin. Bruce Ackley on saxophone, tenor, and soprano. Eric mm-hmm. Hunt on bass. Jimmy Viala on drums and percussion. Nice. Um, and and uh, we are, are featuring, two people we're featuring on poetry, Tarita McKell will be joining us. Mm-hmm. And Pearl Ubungan will be uh, a movement artist on oh, that night. Oh, nice. Wow, it's gonna oh. be—it's gonna be like oh, so you know how a long time ago, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, like when people, yeah, there would be a dancer, there, like, yeah, as a part of you know the program, and and there would be poetry, and then you'd have the music, the live music. It wasn't—it wasn't like every now and then, or like for most most ensembles. There will be all of that stuff, so it's like you're going back. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, right. Back well, no, it's not, I'm going back. I've never left. I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's like as they say, all on one plate. You know, like some of us like it all mm-hmm. on one plate, and um, that's that's where I'm coming from. I mean, it's as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, when you had to go one place for dance, another place for music, another place for poetry. I mean, that's that's somebody. <laughs> I would say that's somebody doing that to us. You know, it's like, hey, mm-hmm. we 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 do it all. Why can't it all be in one place and you know presented as you know in the in the same time? So we're all we're all you know it's we're all coming from the same creative spirit, and I think when you see all the the different forms together, it makes a lot of sense that uh, that it that it all works together. Mhm. Yeah, and and then you call it um you call it critical mass, you know? Um what what is that critical mass? I mean, there are a lot of different definitions for critical mass. How how is critical mass in relationship to uh you know, this ensemble that you pulled together for Monday, September 27, 7:30? Um, again at at Freight and Salvage, twenty twenty Addison Street in Berkeley. You can get your tickets at the Freight, and if you don't know how to spell it, let me do it for you because oh, I get mixed up on the E. I'm sorry, you can't get tickets through 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 the Freight. Oh, through Eventbrite. Yeah, through Eventbrite. Yes, or mm-hmm. you can do it at the door. Right. Yeah. So, but you can find all that out if you go to the website. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So so back to this. Um, Critical, uh, critical mass. mass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what well, um, I guess my sense of it in terms of this is that uh, critical mass is, to be, my understanding of critical mass is at a certain point at which there are enough people. I mean, it doesn't have to be people to be some other category, but I'm talking about people. There are enough people on the right, you know, on the right wavelengths. You know, we're not talking about little fringe two or three people here, two or three people there, but there are enough of us that are in sync that we can that we can recognize ourselves and we can make a difference. Um, and so that's 
that's that's roughly the idea that I was thinking of. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanna um, gonna read your bio and uh, just in case people haven't heard you on my show in a while, um, I'm not sure uh, when we were last in conversation because you know whenever you send me something, oh yes, come on on, come on the air, uh, talk yeah, about I'm, it. <laughs> Right, I can't yeah. remember either. Right, it'll come to me though. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I just think about how um, you know this is um, you know the freight is open you know for live audiences and live music. Um, you know there are some stipulations around it, but for a lot of people, um, they haven't been inside of a venue mm-hmm. in a long yes. time. You know right, to hear right. music, to hear like live music and to be you know even if even if people are distanced in the seats but to be in the same room with other people right. at right some at an art event like yeah like what yeah. you know like like culture shock like oh my goodness how do we yeah i mean we're just like virtual everything and and this is actually going to be live like you're going to be there with these artists performing and have mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. in the audience, you know, mm-hmm. not not on uh, the screen, but actually sitting yeah. in the venue with you. Like, you can look out and see how, you know, your impact on some flesh and blood folks right there. Like, whoa, yeah. that's going to be pretty amazing. Right. Uh, yeah, it'll be surprising. Some of us have – I don't think I've performed yet uh, uh, during the pan- pandemic. This will be the first time – well – yeah, this will be the first oh, okay. time I've performed live since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But uh, a few of us uh, have performed live. But for, you know, for the for this ensemble, this will be a first time. And yeah, it's um, yeah. You mentioned the freight opening, right? They didn't. They were going to open in August, and but then they postponed it because they were trying to get everything right, and they didn't really open to live music till um, um, September ninth. So it's it's all mm-hmm. pretty fresh. Oh, yeah, it is. It really is, yeah. And so, you know, you're a saxophonist, but you're also a poet. And uh, you have a continuing focus on creative structures for improvisation, working with artists from a range of practice, uh, dance, poetry, theater, visual arts. You know, I was just thinking only only, only medium you don't have is someone painting. <laughs> Some live painting going on while you're performing. Well, you know, I have done that and hope to do that again. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. We did, we we have done that. I've 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 worked with uh, Carl Hayward. Uh, he's a he's a painter and and mm-hmm. with a performance where he was painting while we per, were performing. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's actually, that can be done and it works and, uh, I hope to do mm-hmm. that again. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time I ever saw that was at, a uh, Calvin Simmons, um, we pals, not we pals, was it we, yeah, we pals, um, uh, concert at, um, at the now Calvin Simmons theater, which is closed. Um, and that was really fun. And, um, yeah, but I I've seen it a lot, you know, like when I when my daughter grew up and I became and and you know, I started doing going out more, you know, seeing um visual artists 
sort of expressing through their paint sort of what they were feeling through the music mm-hmm. and, and just mm-hmm. the room. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and sometimes it would be multiple paintings because, you know, they, if the one canvas couldn't hold it all. <laughs> so that would be kind of cool, too. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. that can be done all. Yeah, when things are more open and more live, uh, you know, more of what we're mm-hmm. used to or what we're looking for will be available. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering um yeah, I you know, your um your bio is kind of um uh it's it's really creative and I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about some of your um your values and and your ideas and your philosophy around around the creative um arts um performance arts um because when I I think I, one of our first conversations you had just finished a residency um uh at this place that's over by the Golden Gate Bridge. Um Oh, Headland, Headland Center for the Arts. Yeah, the Headland, right. Yeah, and you you did cuz cuz you're a multi, you know, disciplinary artist. I mean, you had a book of poetry came out of it. You had a score. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and your performance, you know, you know, at the end of the residency, you know, you perform, you know, you share with the community what you've been up to, and, and you share with the community what you have been up to. Yeah, and and I think, I, I think this was a first for me, um, you know, like being like, you know, because you you know you have these people you admire, but you'll never get to them because they're so far away. But you're like you're real community, like you're close, so you let me get close. <laughs> To to sort of understand your process and your work, and it was I'm yeah I've been in, you know I've been a fan since then, and that was a long time ago. So if you could talk a little yeah. bit about you know your ideas and what's going to happen on Monday. Right. Well, I I always uh, am into talking about art because it's a. Uh, you know, I, and I like to tag on to what you were talking about earlier with Delfio, uh, and he said mm-hmm. some things that uh, really caught my ear. And one one thing he said, you know, those who can do should do, <laughs> and mm-hmm. yes. you know, I support <laughs> that. And that's, uh, but but, and he also said that he's looking for what I can contribute. And, you know, we we can't all do everything. You know, uh, you know, uh, somebody might want to be a great speaker, but they they can't stand in front of an audience or somebody might want to, you know, you might, all sorts of ways uh, uh, you might want to help the the, the cause, uh, put out positive energy to help uh, collaborate with people and contribute, but you have to find out what what works for you. And uh, I I tend to be a pacifist, <laughs> and so uh art works better for me than 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 weaponry or you know or you could look at it as art is its own form of weaponry um and i i feel that i mean there is there there is a struggle going on i mean you you all you all you and delphio covered a lot of ground that uh, I, I think was good i uh, i mean that it's real. It's real. The, the work that needs to be done, the opposition that we face, that's that's real. 
and we have to do something. And we each have to do what we think we do best to to have the, the effect. You know, it's not it's not just enough to say, well, I, I support this or that, and but I can't do anything. No, I, I think everybody can do something, but you just have to be clear <laughs> what it is you can do, and and what uh, works best for you. And in any case, for me, I find art and with music is the lead voice in that art is what I feel I can do. I mean, that's what I've devoted myself to, what I've tried to, what I continue to to strive to improve on and get better at. And mm. to me, for art to be effective, I mean, it has to be strong. It has to be strong. You have to, I mean, you have to challenge yourself. You have to challenge other people. I mean, because this is what, you know, power can seize nothing without a demand. So we have to, we have to be ready to demand it. We have to be in a challenging mode, and and to do that, you have to have a you have to have a strength of spirit. You have to have a conviction, and I think the art that I'm interested in is the one that strengthens that helps strengthen strengthen the base. You know, um, one way uh, I thought to put it, I don't know, this might uh, might not work all the time to everybody, but I like the idea of preaching to the choir. It's like, you know, the choir needs it. The choir needs some support. Uh, <laughs> people people need to know that they're in it together, that that we're listening to each other and we're all uh, looking forward, trying to do positive things. Um, so, so in terms of, so let me get specific, <laughs> in terms of performance, uh, First of all, I think anytime you are stepping out of categories, you are that's generally a positive step because the the forces you know the the context we're in is like for everyone to sort of categorize themselves. Well, I do rap, I do bebop, I do R&B, I do this, I do this. And, you know, of course some of that is because of the commodification and that's what sells is to be in a category. So I think I think of it as a positive step to to challenge that and to um, to say, well, you know, you come check this out for what it is. We don't need to tell you that it's music or that it's poetry or that it's dance. You get all of that in one place and experience that. Uh, at one time, so that's what. Mm-hmm. We're, so the on um, in our event coming up, music is at the core of it because that's where I'm coming from. But uh, <laughs> as you said, I'm I'm you know I do poetry also, so that will be I'll be bringing that. But uh, but uh, Tarita will uh, will be contributing her part of that also um and then uh, Tarita McKell as a poet Pearl Ubungan dancing uh and we are you know we've been working on I guess one it's one thing that's been interesting to me. This process has been going on because I, I had a vision for it, I guess, early in the year, 
And at that point, it was a question, well, when are we going to be able to perform live? When are you know, live performances really going to be allowed? And then it's a question of of my having a suggested program for the event and then whether, you know, whether people could could consistently uh, work towards putting it together. And so that's that's been that's been what's been happening for uh, several months now. We've been meeting and uh, rehearsing and developing it and, you know, getting our collaborative spirit together on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of preaching to the choir. Um, a lot of times um, the choir, we, we have to be self-rejuvenating. And yes. And it's nice that you think about the choir. Like, yeah, the choir needs... Encouragement too. <laughs> to keep Absolutely, I, yeah, 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 yeah. So that that's really nice, and you actually have a piece entitled "Preaching to the Choir." And I was wondering, do you have new work? Uh, is "Preaching to the Choir" new, or do you have um, work that's going people are going to hear the first time on on Monday evening, um, or you, oh, is it a mix? And and I was wondering, do you have a poem that you wrote um, to, to go along with some of these pieces, like Preaching to the Choir or Heaven's Bells or If I Were King or Going Places? Some of the Those are some of the songs that you sent me, which I presume you're probably going to be performing on Monday evening. The only one uh, I think that I sent you that we'll be performing is If I Were King. We plan okay. to do that one. But uh, mm-hmm. most of what we're doing is is uh, will be new uh, oh, because nice. we we uh, we're taking this into the studio uh, in a couple weeks. So mm-hmm. this will be uh, yeah. This is a sort of last step before we go into the studio with most of the material. And but mm-hmm. then I added two of the older ones. Uh, if I were king, is one. And yeah, there's a poem. Um, uh, that I could read that we're going to well, going places. We're not going to be doing that one, but I could read that poem. But there's another poem that I'm going to read that we are going to be doing. Uh, uh, would you, are you suggesting I read that one? I can do that. You can do both. Um, <laughs> you can do whatever one you want now. You can do another one later. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let let me do this one. This one. This one. Um, um, this one you will hear on Monday. Those of you there. Every stance is a dance. Every demonstration should be a celebration. We have principles. We have heroes. We have a history. And yeah, we got rhythm. We know when to put our foot down. And we know when to lift them up, too, because sometimes the beat is very fast. And it ain't about the stroll. And it ain't about twisting in the wind or rolling with the punches. Meet me at the bottom. Bring me my running shoes. You put your whole faith in and you take your whole faith out. You put your whole faith in and it gets shaken all about. We're caught between jazz and a hard place. No time for the blues. No time for reds. No time for blacks. Those of color or those simply other. Only time for money, because after all, time is 
time was when you could spend your time without spending your money, but now you've got to pay rent on your life. Time and time again, we say, never again, no more, uh-uh, hell no, that's dead, over somebody's dead body, over our dead body. Time and time again, we say, there ain't no time. Like the present, there ain't no time. Love the present. When you see us standing together, you know we got no time to lose. Meet me at the bottom. Bring me my running shoes. So we're doing a a version of that poem on Monday. Not exactly that, but that's the core of it. Wow, that's awesome. So um, is uh, are the other musicians going to be um, performing, uh, you know, as you as you as you recite the work? Uh, with that particular poem, like I said, it's 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 been we have a variation on that uh, mm-hmm. on Monday, and uh, Tarita will be reading that one. Um, oh. And and oh, so, and so you, and the music so will be around that. Poem, you mean? That particular mm-hmm. one, yes. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow, this is going to be interesting. Yeah, I really like that. It sort of reminded me of, you know, sort of the um, Gil Scott Heron, Last Poets, you know, that particular era, because um, they have a poem, you know, about time and time running out. I, uh-huh. I like, I like, I like that time as a theme. <laughs> you know, mm. like, that's all we've got is time. Um, yeah, you know, like money is not is not important. Time is because you can't get it back. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So so to allow to waste it or to allow someone to use your time to use your life because your life has an expiration date. Like mm. nobody stays there forever. Um, Apparently um, not. Yeah, yeah. So far, um, you know, we got the immortals, but only I only know them in in novels. I don't know them for yeah, real. Right. I don't want to know them either. So it's like, all right, if you exist, stay to yourself. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the whole idea of um, time, and and you know, and seasons, um, because. You know, we're in a new season now. You know, this is the fall equinox, and uh, so what do you what do you do with this? You know, uh, well, when you've been here, man, did you start thinking about those things? <laughs> yeah. When you just arrive, you don't think about those things. But when you've been here, man, did you start thinking about those things? <laughs> yeah, 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 and um, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was wondering sort of um you know, sort of how you, how you came, you know, to be the person you are. Like have you always been, you know, a musician, composer, you know, um writer? Um has this been your life? Um since oh. you've had a say over your life? <laughs> I say over my life, yeah, and that's a good question. When do you first have a say over your life? You know, is it when you're an adult? Is it when you're a teenager? Or is it like when you're one week old, you know, uh, or even earlier? 
you know, when do you when do you start making decisions for yourself as opposed to being just shaped by circumstance? Um, I don't know. At some point, <clears throat> I, I well, actually, both of my parents were very creative, so I'm sure I got uh, orientation toward creativity from them. Um, uh, what came up for me, the way circumstances evolved for me, what came up for me was really wanting my creativity to uh, be oriented toward, for lack of a better word, social progress, uh, cultural progress, cultural enhancement, cultural evolution. Um, and and I would say that, that ties in with, um, you know, I, very early on I, I got the sense, I mean, we were, being a black person, being aware of oppression and repression in this country, that didn't take much insight. Uh, but what form of the oppression or repression, suppression, are, are you most sensitive to or most aware of or most want to reach out? And at a certain point, I was really impressed by the, the psychological oppression and and the, the the way the way I can explain my interest in that is like, for instance, as we know, under slavery, it was illegal for um, to to teach black people to read. Um, okay, then fast forward, uh, say to to a certain point in the last century, if not still this century, there were times when black people in you know who were trying to learn or be in school or whatever were looked down upon by certain folks you know it was like well you're and you know it it was not supported i i, I it was people trying to learn and um, improve themselves mentally was sort of looked at as sort of somehow selling out or somehow not really being real to be into books. Uh, there was, a, you know, I would say there's a faction of people who felt that way, say. But that, to me, represents some of the psychological oppression being internalized, you know. Uh, so how can it be that it was illegal for us to read books and now all of a sudden some of us are telling others that not to be so into books? It's like, whoa, how did that happen? Um so anyway, the psychological element really impressed me in the depression, and art to me is our tool, is our medium to so, to get our souls right, to help get our souls right. And that's once our souls are right, you know, we I think our confidence and our direction become stronger. So that that yeah, that's. That's a little bit of what's impressed me along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, are are you from the Bay Area? Um, um, I've spent most. And, of, I I grew up. My, I grew up in um, Chicago, but I was born in San Francisco, and I my whole adult okay. life has been out here. Okay. Well, Chicago has you know has its own you know like wow you grew up in Chicago <laughs> like so much great you know yeah. history and culture in Chicago um, a lot of history and uh, and culture and a lot of depression too I'm so happy not to be there <laughs> oh really oh 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I have I have good friends there. You know, it's like all the best for people who who who've been able to withstand there. But I mean, you talk about psychological oppression and talking about people oppressing one another. It's it's just. Mm. I mean, that's what I think of Chicago. I just think of people uh, just being so down that uh, you know they're looking to bring you down. That's <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm Obviously, glad you found Obviously, that's not for everybody. That's not for everybody. And in the, in the midst of that, a lot of good art was created. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, you can go back to the blues, but uh, you can go back. Uh, for me, uh, I'm thinking the art ensemble, the AACM, yeah. all the good music that came out of there. I mean, that came out of the cauldron. All that, all that good music and good art came out of the cauldron of of, of what Chicago it was and still is, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm really happy that um you know, um this uh this concert is gonna actually you're going to um you're gonna actually, you know, make an album from it so then, you know, at at some point we'll be able to like play it uh you know mm-hmm. won't be by but we'll be able to sort of get get our charge <laughs> so to speak. yeah right and, and that reminded me uh that's when i was on your show before it was i, I had, had a cd just come out then i forget which one but that was what it was uh, that was when i was here mm-hmm. last right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i appreciate uh, you inviting me on wanda Oh no problem. So, have you performed with these artists before? Any new, new um, collaborations um, in this ensemble that you put together? Well, uh, the CDs uh, I've done recently. Um, uh, Jimmy Viala, I worked with him before. I've worked with him for a number of years. Eric Hunt, Olin Eric mm-hmm. Hunt, I've worked with him a number of years. Sandy was on the last two CDs I worked with. Uh, I've never recorded with Bruce Ackley before, but he and I played together way, way back. We had a trio. It was the Sound Clinic with George Sams, Bruce Ackley, and myself. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but this is the first time we're recording. So it's, uh, it's, um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of history among among the musicians here. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, it sounds it's going to be really awesome, and um, I'm not doing in person anything this year, so I will have to wait for the CD to come out. <laughs> yeah, so you're taking it yeah. cautious, huh? You're like you're not you're not uh, taking yeah, any chances with it. Mm-mm. No, I'm I'm still distancing, going I'm into another a second year. Yeah, yeah like. Yeah, it is more than a notion, this uh, self-imposed isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, really, really happy, though, that, you know, you're making this art, which is sustenance for our souls. So, you know, for those that will be in the room, you know, they'll they'll get it right away, the meal, you know, um, mm-hmm. unfiltered, you know. And, and then for those of us that aren't in the room, you know, we'll get it in another fashion, it has a little mm-hmm. bit more longevity um, mm-hmm. than 
the one that we're in the room in our memories. Although, you know, if you keep the memory, then it's got just as much longevity. Um, and, and, and you'll notice the difference, you know, oh, I saw it live, and then you listen like, oh, yeah, there's a difference. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking, um, uh, you know, once we conclude, of may, maybe playing Preaching to the Choir since we talked about it. And you mentioned that if I were king, you all are going to perform that? Yes. On Monday? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay, cool. I I really like the idea of having spells. Are you are you doing any poetry in any of the pieces? Uh yeah, I have um well there's poetry in If I Were King, but um um I'm yeah, I I have a couple there's one poem that Tarita and I'll do together and mm. there's one somewhat short poem that I'm doing by myself but um uh she's got she's got the ma- the majority of the poetry reading on this gig um mm-hmm. and uh we actually go into not to give it away it could be a surprise but who knows uh we're going we're going to <laughs> we're going to read a uh she's going to read a poem by um Reginald Lockett now one Ooh. thing is you know i i i you you know about word win of course with Reginald Lockett Brian QR hand and myself and um yeah we love Reginald yeah, I shade his yeah, memory so, mm-hmm. yes right so you know wordwin was around for a while and and so on this particular occasion i i i was thinking about um um you know honoring him there's um uh yeah, I try. I try to honor all my influences every chance I get. Uh, and so there's one poem by him that uh, Tarita is going to read that um, should be uh, very interesting. Mhm. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I love all of Reginald's work. Do you want to? Um, uh, do you want to conclude our conversation with another poem? You mentioned two, and I said, well, you can do both. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, let me let me give you uh, since we're focusing on Monday. I'm gonna. This is a this is a, one of the poems that Tarita and I'll be reading. Um, there's liable to be music with it. I don't want to give it away, but there's liable to be music with it. But here's the poem: Build a bridge, dig another tunnel. Build a bridge, dig another tunnel. Build a bridge. Dig another tunnel. If they block the highway, we'll come the low way. If they block the highway, we'll come the low way. We're still coming. We still we're still coming. We have the ways and the means. We got the plays and the schemes. We got this. We got next. We got game. We got a mind to give you a piece of. We got the heart to tell you. We have the stomach for it. There you have it. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, what comes first, the uh, the poem or the song? Uh, usually, the poem. Mm. Usually, the poem. Um, I did. There was one. I, I can only think of one exception offhand to my process where the song came first. Um, 
it depends. You know, if I'm just thinking poetry, uh, I, maybe I'll write a poem, but then if I think, oh, the performance coming up, you know, might be nice to see how it, this would fill, fill out if music was involved in it, and then then I try to arrange some music around it. Um, mm. Now, if I were king, that one, um, that came out as a poem first. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, I think I'll play um, If I Were King, and we'll end with Preaching to the Choir. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything else you want to share that we didn't get a chance to touch on um, about, um, you know, this upcoming um, concert um, or anything else? Uh, there's a lot going on, you know. Today is the uh, the fall equinox. Um, you know, there's a protest around uh, immigration um, and the way that you know U.S. immigration and how they're responding to Haitian and other people of African descent um, who are trying to get to this country. I mean, it's a whole other thing, you know, racism and immigration. Um, yeah, and not to mention, you know, um, gosh, all the nas- nas- all the wars that are going on presently. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a lot going on. So, you know, like back to what we were talking about earlier, it's like just, I mean, many people on many fronts making contributions and. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. important just to make sure that each one of us makes a contribution we can at as at the strongest level we we can. Mhm. Yeah, that's a nice picture of you um uh on the Eventbrite. Really, <laughs> really nice. You look really transcendent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I see that. It's like <laughs> Yeah, right. Um that was actually, I have good memory of that. That was taken in Berlin, actually. Um, mm. uh, yeah, no, I, I only thing is I just encourage people to come. And um, mm-hmm. and if you have um, any doubt about uh, the how the audience, how they're treating the audience there, you can contact, if it's not on their website, you can call them and, and just get information because I believe they're requiring everyone, all the audience to be, um, double vaccinated, uh, but you know anybody intending to come should uh, should check that out for themselves. And if you are double vaccinated, then they're going to you know they're going to want to see that coming in the door. So they are they're running a tight ship there in that way. Um, uh, so just be just be just know about that and 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 look into that. Anyone coming, and I hope we've reached some people who will come. The more the merrier. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Critical mass. Yeah. It's good to know that you're not alone, and you know there are folks upholding the mass. You know the majority. <laughs> mhm. Mhm. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you keep up the good creative work, uh, Lewis. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. I know it's going to be phenomenal, and you'll let me know. I'm sure. You know when mm-hmm. the product comes out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I wish. Yeah. I wish. Um. I wish there was a 
a streaming uh, option to most of these live events. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be free because um, then, then those of us that can't come physically could still be in the room and get that charge. It's not quite the same, but, you know. Yeah, we, I know. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I looked into that for a minute, but it's, uh, you know, that's the level of complication and expense uh, that I wasn't ready to take on. I actually probably more the complication than the expense, you know, getting the, getting everything set up and <sighs> that just proved too difficult to do. We are going to get it videotaped, but we're not going to stream. It's not going to be streamed live, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Maybe at some other time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I'm sure this isn't going to be your only performance, so... Yeah, yeah, maybe at another one in the future. Yeah, yeah, I hope uh, better days are coming. But uh, it looks like it's 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 a little dubious, though. I mean, because I was just saw today about another mm-hmm. variant they're talking about. It's like something's happening really? here. Yeah, they're talking about another one. <laughs> yes, they oh, are. Oh my goodness! Because I know there's uh, two, but really. Another Which one? one well, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I. Well, that would, you know. Oh, wow. I don't know. There's a lot yeah. to read up on that. Um, mm. And of course, people <laughs> have different takes. You know, some people don't believe mm-hmm. in vaccines. We know, and um, some people don't even believe in masks. But I mean, you know, it's just a lot going on. I, 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 I personally, I think it's, you know, when you think of the climate. Um, issues also it's like this whole people are just the whole sense of we're into something together and we all need to pull together i mean that's just Mm -hmm. fraying around the edges it's like and i think it comes out in different ways and so i you know that the unity of uh of 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 purpose and and um you know collaboration it just needs to be worked on all all across the board uh, mm-hmm. but, but Wanda, again, thank you very much for, for having <laughs> me on, and 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 uh, for you too. Uh, I hope carrying on the, the work, the creativity. I mean, uh, it's you know, you're definitely <laughs> you're definitely I know a, a model for for folks in terms of keep up keeping being consistent and putting out the word on a regular basis. Uh, I mean, that's what needs to be done. So, thank you. So thank you, Louis. And, oh, you're quite welcome. And thank you. And uh, we're going to play um, If I Were King, and then that's going to be followed by Preaching to the Choir. And we're going to go out with John Coltrane's Equinox, um, just because today is the Equinox. <laughs> yeah. So folks, you look up. The, the moon is full. <laughs> All right. All right. Take good care. Be safe. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Peace and blessings. Mm-hmm. 
I were king, I'd have the teachers preach. King, I'd speak truth to power. I'd tell myself what I really believed. Even if it made me uncomfortable. If I were king, I'd call for my pipe. And have a bowl while listening to Phoebe or the Queen of Soul. To the Count, the Duke, or that King Cole. If I were King, my rap would be so tight they'd call me Touch. If I had to take it with me, I could, but I'm here to play. So I'll stick and stay, dreaming by night and dreaming by day. However I want it, I'll have it my way. I'll do as I do and walk as I say. Tis of me, of me I sing I've got my own little world here on a string Wherever I am, I'll call home Just to hear freedom's special ringtone Wherever I sit will be my throne Whenever I laugh, I won't be alone
But I say it anyway Sometimes Trying to reach out We forget to teach in We work to convince somebody new And neglect to encourage folks Who've always been true Sometimes We forget about we When we're talking to them When our voices come together, we might not be on the same note, but there's a blend. We can all sing together, but we don't have to all sing alike. Amen.
just like our hands get bruised when we're digging for our roots. If we want to take things higher, got to reach into the fire. We can always do our best, but it's not always with finesse. I'm talking about, but I say it anyway. Seeing the world as it is, knowing ourselves as we do, to what above could we aspire than preaching to the choir? choir. Yeah, we we need some preaching directed at the choir. (laughs) That was really lovely. And so if you are vaccinated, um, definitely, and you're going out, going to events, Monday night at Freight and Salvage is going to be a really wonderful event. Freight and Salvage is located in Berkeley. Uh, The show starts at 730. You can get tickets at the door. You can also get them on Eventbrite in advance. This weekend is the um, Dancing with Poetry uh, Festival, and it's virtual. And uh you want to know more about that, go to wandaspicks.com or look up Dancing Poetry um, online at their website. I wanted to close with a happy birthday to Miss Betty Reed Soskin, who is um the uh the elder um the oldest United States National Park Service Ranger and there was a movie that came out honoring her and and her work and there's gonna be a play that SF Backhoe is going to be uh debuting October sixteenth and seventeenth. And so that should be really nice. But just wanted to um, wish her a happy birthday, 100. That is no joke. And also want to wish a happy birthday to Miss Anita J. Black, um, who made 100 as well this year, last month, August 23rd. And she was born in Salinas, California. So happy birthday to our two elder sisters, uh, Miss Anita Black. Um, was I don't know if she was the first nurse at Highland first African American nurse at Highland General Hospital, but I think so. And uh and her mother um is uh is um is a real mover and shaker 
Um, she is no longer with us. Um, Frances Albier, um, there is a community center named after her in Berkeley. So, um, And you could look her up in the uh, Smithsonian um, Museum of African American History. Um, there's a whole big archive there because Miss um, Black donated her mother's um, archive to to that to that museum. So anyway, alrighty. Thanks so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. We'll have another live show on Wednesday of next week, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Friday. You take good care. Be safe. Peace and blessings. And Happy autumn.